The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. I was thinking um, this morning uh, just how much bad news we hear. You guys ever thought about it? Just how much bad news you hear every single day? Whether little things or big things? I just think, like, just in the past, uh, I don't know, 36 hours, uh, I've heard about a, a, a girl Megan follows online. Uh, she is 20 weeks pregnant. She found out she has a very rare, um, her child that she's carrying has a very rare birth defect, very rarely born alive. And if they are born alive, uh, they die within a few minutes. It has some issue with the in the womb, the bones keep breaking inside the womb over and over again. The baby just ends up dying. Uh, somebody was telling me this morning, somebody I don't know, but a, a friend of theirs, their 17-year-old son was in an accident last Sunday or Monday and has been uh, in ICU since then. His, wa- his jaw is wired shut and he's on a trach. 17-year-old kid. Uh, somebody else was telling me about how a, um, somebody's son down in, uh, down in Charleston, was out fishing. I think he was 17 years old as well, out fishing with some buddies. Something happened. He fell off the boat. His buddies couldn't get to him. And now they're mourning the loss of their son. That, that's not even counting the, the plane crash I heard about last night in Massachusetts. I mean, have you ever thought about just how much bad news that we're inundated with on any given day, any given 24, 36 hours? And out of all those stories that I told... You and I probably had the thought when you heard that, like, wow, that's not right. Uh, a 20-week-old baby in the womb, like, that's not right. There's something wrong about that. Two families, one mourning the loss of a 17-year-old son, the other, the 17-year-old in critical condition today, like, that's not right. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. And the world is full of stuff like that. The world is full of these, all these bad things that are happening, and somewhere inside us we know, like, it just shouldn't be this way. Life should look different. It should be different. It's not right that this happens. But what isn't inside us that says that? Because if you and I just came from, if we evolved over time and what we there's no God in control, and it's just like survival of the fittest, then we shouldn't mourn when any of those things happen. It's just like they didn't make it, and I made it. I'm, I'm fitter. I'm stronger. I'm better. We should celebrate our strength rather than and think that, that something like that was wrong, that something happened to them. But we innately, instinctively know that something is wrong there. And it's that that we've been talking about working through the book of Nehemiah. That when Nehemiah was going through his everyday life and life was comfortable for him, it was secure for him, he had a cush job, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was one of the, the king's like 
most admired, most trusted servants. His job, it was a pretty cool job. He served the most powerful man in the world. So that means he lived in the household of the most powerful man in the world, the, probably the richest man in the world in the face of the, uh, the face of the earth at that time. He lived in his house, in his, in his digs. He had a pretty cool, pretty comfortable life going on. And then his job was pretty cool. He was the sommelier to the king. It was his job to know what was good, what, what matched. I still don't have any idea. Like what goes with fish and what goes with meat and like the nuances. They're like, oh, this one tastes like blackberries and vanilla and a hint of rose petals. And I have no idea. I'm like, it tastes the same as the other one to me. I don't know. Like that's a good one. That's a bad one. I, don't, I can't pick out the difference, but he was able to know the difference and be able to serve the king just the right glass. And he was a very important job because it was his job to taste the cup and to taste the food and make sure that nobody was trying to assassinate the king by sticking some poison in there. And like, so if Nehemiah lived and the king would eat, that's a pretty important job, pretty trusted job that he had. And Nehemiah, though, one day, his friends come from Israel, his homeland, though he had never been there, sort of like, you know, you know Megan's family is from, uh, one side is from Wales, one is from Laos. Megan's never been to one of those, but she's from, you know, that's where her roots go back to. And it's like somebody comes in one day and he says, hey, how is the home country? And they say, well, actually, it's not good. The, the walls have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And if, see, if you were a city at that time, the walls are torn down and the gates are destroyed, you're totally and helpless and defenseless. And anybody wants to come in and steal your cattle or steal your money or steal your children or your wife or whatever they want to do, if they want to ambush you in the middle of the night, you have absolutely no safety and no protection. So a city was known by how rich and how powerful it was, by how big its walls were and how tall and strong its walls were. And Jerusalem now, which once had been a beautiful city, the crown jewel of God's people, in the country of Judah now lies in ruins, and nobody is hardly living in the city because it's such a, a, a dangerous place to live. It's, it's empty, it's like a ghost town, and the gates are destroyed, and the walls are destroyed. That's right, a ghost town, not the kind that you're thinking of, though that would be cool as well. The gates are burned by fire, and the walls have been torn down, and Nehemiah hears about that, and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. Because he knows like there's a distance between the way things are and the way that things should be. He instinctively knew things need to be different. And the reason that he knew that is because it's sort of hardwired into us that life should be uh, Life should be peaceful, life should be uh, full, life should be safe, life should be without pain or hurt or, or problems. Like there should be, a, there should be this, this Jewish picture, there's a word called shalom. Have you guys heard that word before? It's translated in English as peace, but it's more than just like when we say peace, we say like we're not at war or fighting with each other, but the idea of shalom is this idea of wholeness, an idea of health, that not only are things, we're not fighting each other, but things are clicking the way that they should be. And there's this inner sense inside us that knows that this world should be shalom, but it's not. So it's like longing for something to be better, to be like it was, though we've never even tasted it before. And in the, in the, floating around in the back of our mind is a, is, a, is a memory of a sense of an echo that things should be different. 
that things should be better. There's a sense of a memory, of an echo, of a whisper that things should be different that things should be better. And that's because things originally were made to be in wholeness and peace. When God created the world at the very beginning and puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and man, it is awesome. There's a garden, there's food, uh, Adam has a job. God puts him over the whole world. He has a corner office in the new creation. He's naming all the animals. He's running the deal. He's got jobs to do. He's got a beautiful by the way, woman with no clothes on, hanging around every single day in the garden. It is pretty, it's a pretty sweet gig that is going on. It is, and not only that, but God, the God of all creation who created the whole world, the CEO, he comes down every day in the cool of the day and he and Adam and Eve, they go out for a walk and they talk, they chit chat about what's going on. Wonder what they talked about. Wonder what those conversations would be like. Yeah, you'll never believe what this new universe that I just boom and create like is this. You got to see this. It's awesome. Hey, Adam, have you seen a giraffe yet? No, I haven't seen that yet. Come around the corner. Look at that thing. And they're like, wow, God, that's amazing. Imagine the conversation. What were you thinking when you did that? Imagine when they saw the roach. Like, God, what were you thinking when you did that? I don't understand what is going on here. But they're walking around, seeing creation, having a good time together. Life is shalom. It is peaceful. It is this sense of wholeness and perfection. Now, you guys know the story. Like, Adam and Eve aren't hanging around very long, and then the, the snake comes up. And guys, any time a snake talks to you, don't trust it. But it, it happened. At Eve, she was not kind of naive. It hadn't happened before. She's hanging around. The snake says, you guys may have known the story. Hey, try this in. She says, oh, I'll try it out. And Adam's hanging around, and he's sitting back on the lazy boy, and he's clicking the channel changer. He sees her over there talking to the snake. Because it says that Adam was with her. He sees her over there talking to the snake. He's like, mm, yeah, I'm just going to keep on clicking the channel. And then she says, hey, you got to try this. And he goes over there, and he tries it, and boom, creation is just like, it is never the same again. God creates it in the sense of wholeness and peace and shalom. But then the fall comes and everything is fractured. Right off the bat, in Genesis, if you have your Bible, I don't have it on the screen this morning. You can turn there. If not, I'm just, I'll just run over it real quick. In Genesis chapter 3, this is after the, this bad stuff has just happened. They heard the Lord, Adam and Eve. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife, before when they would have run to him and hung out with him, and you know, I don't know what they did, grabbed a coffee, and I, I think they had coffee. Uh, if there's shalom and peace. I love coffee. If there was shalom and peace in this world, it had to involve like a nice, freshly roasted, well crafted, well brewed cup of coffee, walking around with God in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife. Though this time they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam answered and said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Already you see a fractured relationship between God and man. Before man was creating the perfect image of God, they had great communion. They would hang out every single day. God as father and friend and whatever, the amazing relationship they had, all of a sudden they're hiding from God whenever he comes on the scene. I hid you, I hid and I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, so that now you're going to see the next fracture. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. And how many times men that are married or in a relationship have we done the same thing? Or women, because you're going to see it's not just us guys. We're going to stick with us guys for the moment, like, like it, the blame game, right? Uh, you, I would have done this if you hadn't had said this. You see a fracture where Adam, Eve was taken out her, the rib was taken out of Adam's side and she was built around that. A much improvement, by the way, I guys, can't we agree, like the second model was an improvement, 2.0, improvement over version 2.1, at least like when you're when, like looking in the mirror and looking over here, I'm like, I'd rather look at this any given day. And, and, and she had been taken from him, they lived in perfect unity, but now when the fall happens, the relationship between God and man fractured, the relationship between man and this woman who he had perfect perfect relationship and community with is now fractured and he's blaming her. He's throw it the first time somebody throws somebody under the bus right there. Now Dale will throw you under the bus in a skinny minute and he just, you got to keep an eye on him. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she's passing the blame as well. And then the curse comes. He curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15. And in verse 16, he said to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. That means like you're, uh, you're going to want to kind of grab the, the wheel from your husband. You're desiring to, ever written, written with, uh, you know, I'm not saying Kramer's name, but ever written with Kramer, you ever want to try to reach over and grab the wheel from him? Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam's into Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see at the very beginning, Adam had a cushy job. He's overall a creation. He's naming the animals. God had already told him, go subdue the earth, multiply. So he's saying, like, go have a job. That's going to be a fulfilling, awesome job, and go have good times with your wife so you can make babies. So, like, that's a pretty awesome job description, and fractures come, not only between God and man, between man and wife. Community is shattered, and also man's work is shattered. His career is shattered. It's going to be by the, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're going to be fighting to be able to sustain and support your family now, where it used to have to, it would, no, it would normally go smoothly for you. We were made to be in unity and the shalom with the world around us. Now it's going to be fractured. So we see the husband and wife are fractured. We see the man and God are fractured. We see even parents and kids are fractured. That comes up later in the story. Like Adam and Eve have two kids and one of them goes off the rails. He kills the other one. I said, that's already, hey, so if you're, if you're not real confident in your parental skills, just think. Adam and Eve, the first parents, pretty uh, 50% success rate at the very beginning. So we're all in the same boat. Society at large is messed up. It's not going to be too far. You fast forward the story and God looks around the earth and he says, everything is bad. And he's going he's to talk to Noah and Noah's going to build an ark, but that's a different story. And then also our career 
fracture between us and the work, and then also a fracture between career and family. How many of you guys ever felt like that, like that, uh, that tension between I want to work, I need to work hard, but when I work hard, I'm pulling away from my family. And if I'm going to be dedicated to my family, then work is going to suffer. So you always feel this tension back and forth, like how much do I need to work and how much do I need to be home? And this tension back and forth, and there's supposed to be this shalom and wholeness going on. See, the, the, the book starts with creation and then fall happens and the fracture happens and we're all kind of floating around on our own island trying to figure things out in the dark. That's really what the picture of like the human existence is like. We're all floating around on a sliver of ice in the middle of icy water, separated from everybody else around us and though we can hear them and we want to reach them and every now and then we grab each other, we keep floating away from each other we can't quite make it, and it's dark. We're just fumbling around, isolated from each other. Fractures happen. The creation, and then the fall comes. And then what we see in the book of Nehemiah is a, is a, is a picture of what's coming ahead. Because what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene, in the middle of us floating around the icy slivers in the middle of the water in the dark, fractured from each other, we keep, I mean, you keep wanting to like get better as a person, you keep wanting to develop better relationships with the people around you, but no matter how hard you try, you keep failing, they keep falling apart. There's never seen, you never seem to have enough arms to keep the fruit juggling in the air, and something's always falling to the wayside into our darkness and into our mess comes Jesus Christ. And he says, see, here's the problem. The problem isn't that you just need to become a better husband or better wife. The problem isn't that you need better self-discipline so you can not do these bad things and start doing these good things. The problem isn't any of these things. The problem is that you need to learn how to be a better friend or you need seven steps to better finances. The problem is that the separation that happened in the very beginning between you and God, the, the source of life, it's sort of like a sort of, sort of like a, if you ever like you keep cutting off you keep cutting off a weed, but it keeps growing back because its source of life is those roots underneath. Our source of life was meant to be rooted in Jesus Christ, rooted in God, rooted in, in his identity for me, and not for me to try to scrounge around and get my own identity on my, my own identity on my own. When that root was cut off. We were just left flailing around in the dark. And Jesus Christ says what you need is not just to be a better husband or wife or son or parent or harder worker or save more or spend less or eat less or exercise. The core of your problem is you have been cut off from the source of your life. You are trapped in darkness and you need to be redeemed or rescued from the darkness. And what he says is the, the penalty that you owe because of your sin that started with our great-great-grandfather Adam and our great-great-grandmother Eve in the garden that day, and we have followed in their pattern. How many of you guys, like, no matter how hard you try, like, you're old enough to realize now, some of you are young enough, you, don't, you haven't caught on yet, but you're old enough to realize, like, no matter how much you don't want to be like your mom and dad, what happens? There's some things you just can't help it. You end up being like mom and dad. And we have super strong, unbreakable gene pool that stretches back to Adam and Eve at the beginning, and we cannot break it. 
and we follow their pattern over and over and over and over again. And what Jesus Christ came and did is he paid that penalty that nobody in that line could pay in order to reunite us back to God. He redeemed us out of darkness into his light. And this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and rescued out of darkness and into light. Jesus came to restore us to that shalom that we've been talking about, that I've been talking about. You guys have just been listening to me talk about. Hopefully you're not thinking, I know some of you are just thinking about like lunch and, you know, where you parked and which beach access you're going to go to afterwards. But every now between those times, you've been listening to me talking about this shalom thing, right? That shalom that we know, that we want, that we desire in our innermost beings, he has redeemed us, and he has came to restore us to that shalom through redemption. There's no, there's no way to be restored to that shalom by your physical exertion and energy. There's no way to be restored to that shalom and that peace and that wholeness by your mere effort or your discipline or sheer force of your will or personality. Because you know what? No matter how much I don't want, like, I want to, like, there's still, I, I, I try not to talk about this too much lately because I, I felt like I was kind of using it too often as an example a few months ago. But between now and about a year ago, I've lost, like, 40, 45 pounds. And there's still about, now there's, like, a straggling, like, five, eight pounds that I have left there that I want to get rid of. But, you know, sometimes, no matter how much I want to lose that five to eight pounds, what I'd rather have is a cheeseburger tray from cookout. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and I'm going to be honest, at times, late at night, nobody else is in the car with me, what I'd really like to have is a cheeseburger and a hot dog and a shake from cookout. And that's when you really feel like really guilty afterwards, like I need to do like something afterwards, like this is this is crossing into sin at that point. But I'm just, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm confessing to you guys, no matter how much you want to improve and get better, how many of us recognize that we're weak and we're broken and you can't hold all the pieces together. It's only by God the only way that we can be restored to that shalom in our relationships, in our careers, in our family, is through redemption. Let's look real quick. You're like, oh, he's finally getting to Nehemiah. Don't worry. There's a reason. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah is, whenever he hears about how the walls are broken down, and his heart is broken, and he decides to leave the comfort and security of the palace and go to his homeland and rebuild the wall. When he does so, he's, he's looking forward to the day when not only when God redeems each of us individually in our personal faith, but one day he's coming again to restore things the way that they should be, to make things right. He's going to restore creation to shalom through his redemption. So we see that storyline throughout scripture. It starts with creation. Then you see the fall, and then you see redemption, and then you see restoration at the end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. And then we, we saw last week how he comes to Jerusalem and he takes a, he walks around the walls and he gets a look at it and he sees what's going on. And then uh, 
excuse me, and then in verse 17, he stands in front of his people and he says, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. We talked last week about how when we look around the Myrtle Beach area, 300,000 people here, 60% of which, from the demographics that I've seen, at least 60% of which are not believers in Jesus Christ today. That means there's 180,000 people, though there's a church in almost every corner, there's 180,000 people in the Myrtle Beach area who do not call Jesus Christ Lord, whose today their eternal destinies, when they woke up, were not governed by the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And then over, over that, like, so 60% aren't, aren't believers. It's something where about 70, 75% of people do not have a church home, a regular church home that they're regularly attending. They might have one that when they go, like, once every 8, 10, 25 weeks, that's where they go, but they don't have a regular church to be a part of. That means there's somewhere around 225 to 250,000 people in the Myrtle Beach area that do not have a church home that they call. We look around Myrtle Beach and we see the brokenness. How many of you guys have, like, been here long enough that you realize, like, it's not the beautiful resort town that you hoped it was going to be when you moved here. It's full of brokenness. There's a lot of people here that are just plain adrift. There's so much substance abuse and lostness and helplessness around. People are just floating around in life. We look around and we see the problem around us. The gates are burned and the walls are broken down and our people lie in derision. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Let's do this thing, is what they said. And one of the things that we've been talking about so far in the book of, of Nehemiah is the part that we get to play in redemption and restoration that longing that we have for that shalom in the beginning and that fracturedness that we all experience in life from the fall, that we get to join Jesus Christ in his work of restoration through redemption. And when we look around us, our hearts need to be broken for the brokenness that we see around us. And then we as people individually and together, we stand up and we say, yes, let's arise and build. Let's not sit around anymore and sit on our hands and hope that somebody does something one day. I've been saying for weeks that we only get one shot to be the church. Each of us here, if you're a Christian today, we get 20, 40 years, probably from where you are today, some of you shorter, some of you longer, I'm not pointing at anybody, we get a short time to be the church. This is our shot to be the church that God has called us to be along the grand strand. And to link arms together and say, yes, come, let us build. Let us put our hands to the plow and work from joy because we know that Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption. And because he has accomplished redemption, full restoration is just around the corner. And so then the chapter three, which is our topic this week, I don't know if you cheated ahead and looked at it. I'm sure you have because it's a fascinating read. It's a list of names. Let's, let's, I'm going to give you guys an example. Let, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
Then, and this is also fun because they're awesome names. So my, my uh, I'm, I'm telling you what I do. When I come across names, sometimes I'll have looked and see how they're supposed to be pronounced. But if I haven't done that, my modus operandi is to pronounce them confidently. And if I say it confidently, you guys say, well, that must be the way it's supposed to be said. Except the Jewish and, the Jewish and Greek scholars in here, and you guys can just be quiet. Verse Verses one and two of chapter three. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. The, the chapter is full of that. And Eliashib and Okabagbadeh and Malachalajah, they worked together and they, they worked and they built the wall together. And what's really cool about that is it starts off, the, starts off the chapter and says the priests were working. Have you ever seen me do handiwork? I got a chance, that, and he probably is more handy than I am. Last night when we were here, we were uh, trying to do some stuff with this box that we had when to pack stuff in, and, 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 and Dale was like doing some construction work on the box. It was just really fun to watch him. Like he had to drill out and he had screws and handles, and then he and I were doing it together. And I'm like, wow, this is probably watching like, uh, I, I don't know, it's probably watching two terrible people dance. This has got, got to be a really, really ugly thing to watch. Have you ever seen priests, ever seen pastors try to build something? But they, no matter whether they're good or bad, they jumped and they work. The priests, the men of Jericho, they all jumped in. They grabbed their hammers, they grabbed the stones, and they got to work. Look at verses eight through 10. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harariah, and Gos, the goldsmiths repaired. So these are jewelers. They jump in and they're working on the wall. Do they have any, any expertise in building like fortified walls around cities? No, but Nehemiah didn't either. He was a sommelier to the king who happened to have a burden. And when you have a burden and you respond to God in obedience, he gives you what you need to get the job done. They were goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. One of the perfumers. He made perfume. So he's like the artsy guy. He's like wearing like the really tight jeans, you know, with the cool cuffs at the bottom. And every now and then he'll throw a scarf on because he's just cool like that. And his hair is always perfect. You know the guys I'm talking about, right? They carry man bags. Like he, he was in there and he jumped up and he, and he jumped on the wall to work. Perfumer, fashion dude. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. So you have the goldsmith, the jeweler. You have the fashion dude. And next to him, you have the ruler of half of Jerusalem, the mayor of half of Jerusalem. They're all working together. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. I don't know what your background is or what your career, what your placard says on your desk or your name tag says on your uniform. But where, whoever you are, wherever you come from, he's called us all together as a beautiful picture of the whole, what the restored creation is going to look like. And we lock arms together and we work shoulder to shoulder on the wall. Um, next to them, Jedediah, son of Harumpapha, which sounds like you should say, excuse me after you say it, rep- <laughs> 
repaired opposite his house. You know what? That's a great way to get people to work hard. If you say, hey, we're going to build this wall so people won't attack us and come steal your daughters and your kids and your money. And so here's what I'm going to have you do. Here's the part of the wall you're going to be working on. You're going to be working on the wall in your backyard. How hard are you going to work on that, right? You're going to work extra hard. And whenever you live in a city, whether it's Myrtle Beach, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, California, when you live in a city, last week we talked about how we're supposed to be here for the city that we're around. We as Christians, we're not against the city. We exist for the city, to serve the city and love the city for the sake of the gospel, to see God restore it through redemption. And we lock arms in order to do that. And we, we're buying into it because it's the wall that's opposite our house. Because, because the, that, whatever it is that you drive by every day that hurts your heart, your neighbors, that you hear their stories of brokenness and it turns, it, it, it just gets you going inside. Something, something breaks your heart about it. You're gonna work extra hard on that. It's not like a kid in Africa you're sending money to. They still send the money to the kid in Africa. But it's, talking about buy, it's talking about buying into the problem that's here at home. And next to him, Haddish, the son of Hashabaniah, bye-bye, repaired all of them together. And then look down in verses, uh, verse 17. After him, the Levites, that's, that's more priests. That, that had to be an awesome-looking part of the wall. Then uh, after him, the Levites repaired. Reum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, the brothers repaired. These other people repaired. Ruler of half the district of Keilah repaired again. It's people together, locking arms. It says that they, they jumped in together and they worked shoulder to shoulder for the work. And so here, here's the take home for us this morning. Each of us here lives in a different part of this area. You have a different job. You have a different family. Your kids go to a different school or you go to a different school. You wear different clothes. Some of you are very fashionable and I feel like, like uh, you know, less than besides you. Some of you, like I feel really good when I stand beside. Some of you are really good looking. Some of you aren't. Some of you are rich. Some of you are poor. Some of you like, are like really smart and some of us aren't so much smarter-ish. All of us, no matter what our lives look like, have a section of the wall that we're gonna work on. You're gonna have some, a, a job that you're going to that looks different from mine. People that you're gonna be around that are different than the people I'm gonna be around. You're gonna have certain passions and desires, things that get you going. I was talking to somebody this week and she said, hey, you know, I've been, think, been praying about this burden thing you've been talking about. I think I have a burden for the unborn. There's some other people talking, I have a burden for this, I have a burden for this. We're gonna have different burdens. Your burden doesn't have to be my burden, doesn't have to be your burden. But it says that we take the thing, the area of life that God has us in, the community, the neighborhood, the career, the job, the passions, the giftings that you have, and you jump on your section of the wall and you work hard. You work hard to bring a picture of that restoration that Jesus bought us by his redemption, that is gonna be fully realized when he comes back and brings shalom to the whole world. We lock arms, we're working on different part of the walls, but we lock arms together for the glory of God, for the sake of his kingdom.
So your part of the wall will look different from mine, your family, your relationships, your career. And then we're gonna, so it's gonna be your individual kind of part, but then as a community of faith, how do we come together to say, God, how do you, how do you make your name great? God, we, we see these 225,000, 250,000 people that don't have a church home, 180,000 people that their eternal destinies at least are not governed by Jesus Christ this morning. What can we do to do that? And then we jump together as a family of faith and we say, let's do it. And your part will look different from my part. You have different passions that are gonna be involved in the family of faith in our everyday life as a church. It's gonna be different from mine. But God has called us to come together with our different backgrounds, different ethnicities, hopefully, different, different uh, careers, different emphasis, different passions, different giftings, different talents to join in for the good work. Shoulder to shoulder, working on our part of the wall, but we're doing it together. Have you ever like gotten together with a group of people and you like did some like painted it painted a house or like did some chores together? You know what brings you faster together than sitting around people like just talking, working together. There's a different kind of bonding that comes when you say, "Hey, we have this common cause, and we're buying in together, and we're going to work shoulder to shoulder, and then doing so, we're going to laugh." And we're going to cry, and you're going to experience ups of life, and you're going to experience downs of life's love life, and we're going to be there together, working shoulder to shoulder, locking arms for the good work of God. And we can do so confidently with joy, because when we're when we're working to see God, would you bring redemption? Would you bring restoration to the city of Myrtle Beach? When I go to work as a banker or an attorney, or I'm home with the kids and I'm raising them in the fear of admonition of the Lord, when I'm doing those things, I'm participating in your work of restoration in this community. When I come to church or I volunteer to do something or I serve and I love and I meet with people and I disciple each other and I'm being discipled when I'm participating in that. I'm participating in the good work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross that will be fully realized whenever he returns to make all things new. And we could do so confidently with joy because we know the ending. The period, the exclamation point on the end of the creation, fall, redemption is restoration. And that will happen because the God who set this whole thing in motion is bringing it to a close at the end in a beautiful story that we get to participate in. So as we get ready to go into communion this morning, let's go this morning with a standpoint, with a heart that we want to participate individually and as a community of faith in God's good work of restoration. One way that we want to do this, and I'm done, one way that we want to put our, our money where our mouth is um, as a church, we're just a baby church, but thankfully we don't, have many, we don't have many expenses. And so we've been kind of saving up money, being pretty, uh, pretty uh, conservative with what we use our money for. Neither Dale and I draw a paycheck. Um, we just keep things low to the ground. Is a... Uh, as we will say, while we're in this point in life as a church, we don't have many expenses. Let's put our money where our mouth is 
and invest in the community and invest in the mission of God. So here's what we want to do. As a small community here, I know you guys can do it because I've seen how you guys have been giving. Um, And we don't talk about giving very much. This may be the first time that I've talked about it even this long. But here's what we want to do. As a small church, we want to give $15,000 to the mission of Jesus Christ. And the way that we want to split that up is we want to give $5,000. Uh, we haven't decided what yet, but if you guys have any ideas, you can come and talk to, to, to Dale. Um, we want to give $5,000 to local, local missions group, somebody who's serving for re- restoration through redemption along the Grand Strand, and let's join them and say, let's lock arms together. It's just a little bit. Let's help with that. And then maybe those of us, hopefully, we can partner with them and say, we'll give you manpower and hours and volunteer and help you with this as a people. And the second thing we want to do is we want to, give to, uh, we want to give to God's mission nationally, restoration through redemption. And so we're going to have a church planner who's just getting started, just getting ready to head down to St. Petersburg, Florida in a, in a few months. And he's raising support right now in order to do it. And we're going to bring him in. He's going to tell us about what he's doing. And we're going to give him $5,000 in order to get started with his uh, church planning efforts down in St. Petersburg. And hopefully those of us individually and us corporately together, if we like jive with him, we'll jump in and say, hey, yo, we'll support you regularly. And then we want to give $5,000 to international missions. There's a church planning group in Bihar, India. It's one of the poorest areas of the, of the world. It's an area the size of Tennessee. It has 100 million people that live there. God is moving there. They have an indigenous church planning movement. No Westerners are involved. They're going, these villagers are going village to village, pastoring, planting churches, and leading them. And we want to be able to give them some money. They also house children. We want to be able to help them wisely in order to do some of that stuff and in the future invest in God's international restoration through redemption across the world. So I just want to challenge you guys. Let's, let's jump in. If you call this place home, let's jump in over the next few weeks. We're going to be having some people that are coming to tell you about this stuff. We'll, we'll be talking about it, but to give to that end. We want, we want God just to say, hey, this is one way that we can do this, put our money where our mouth is, and invest in the greater purpose of God. Father, I thank you that though uh, we have this sense that, uh, that we were created for wholeness, that we were created for, for peace and shalom, that uh, even though we feel fractured and lost oftentimes, that uh, you have secured a redemption and restoration by your work on the cross on our behalf. So, Father, I pray that you would make us into a people individually and a people together who work shoulder to shoulder for your good work, and we start to view our careers and our families and our neighborhoods and our, uh, everything that we're, that we're surrounded by as ways that we get to serve your great restoration through redemption. I pray that you would help us to repair our hearts as we get ready to partake of communion. To remember your finished work on our behalf. In the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.